created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me questions, ask my guests questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. Today's guest is best-selling author Jeff Romig. Uh, but before I want to get started, I, I do want to mention that if you are in crisis, call the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Um, that's, they're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so my guest today, Jeff Romig, he's the best-selling author of Don't Fucking Kill Yourself, which is a memoir about his own experience losing his dad to suicide and how that has affected him. His purpose is to let others know that they are not alone in their struggle and that the only way to eliminate the stigma around suicide is to stop deflecting and start talking. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Lauren Lee, how are you? I'm great. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I think this is an extremely important subject. Um, but first, I want to talk about the title of your memoir, which is bold. Sure. Don't fucking kill yourself. What was behind choosing the title for this book? Yeah, it's definitely bold, but it wasn't. Um, there's actually a story behind it. It wasn't just a, intended to be an eye catcher. Um, <laughs> about 10 years ago, a friend asked me if I could only say one more thing to my dad, what would I say? And that was my answer because, mm. you know, it's not, again, it's not meant to be edgy. It's not meant to be glib. It's suicide is that serious. And, um, you know, and so for me, that was my answer to that question. And then, you know, through the process of, of writing the book, which I started in July of 2020 um, in the pandemic, you know, in the height of the pandemic, um, it's also a mantra, you know, for people who experience suicidal ideation and which I do. And um, still just, you know, just because I wrote a book doesn't mean I'm, <laughs> I'm fixed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the three, you know, my book is a memoir, not, not a self-help book, but I do share sort of three key things. And the first one is to share and share often um, about mental health, about suicidal ideation, if you experience that, put yourself out there in the world. Um, because not only will you find that people will reach out to you to support you, but they'll also reach out to you for support, which, you know, helping each other makes us feel valued and whole and hopeful and, um, you know, can be an antidote to, to suicidal ideation. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing, which is really sort of the premise of the book is, connect with the people, passions, and experiences that bring you joy. And I didn't, that phrase was a phrase that didn't, um, or a concept that didn't really land with me until I had written the first draft of the book. Um, mm. And my, my first editor kept asking me like, you know, why are you telling this specific story um, in the, you know, the chapters are each based on dates and 
So he was like, why are you telling this specific story? And I got really tired of the question. Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously editors are amazing. And because they get you to, to answer hard questions. And, you know, and I really landed on that, you know, the stories I'm telling and sharing are about the people, passions and experiences from my life. Because when I'm in my darkest moments and I'm only about, you know, I'm, I'm with myself and it's tapping into those memories um, and that, you know, that perspective um, that can really help pull me through the darkest moments. So that's the second thing. And then the last thing is, is the mantra, don't fucking kill yourself. And if you get to, you know, if you get to that place where you're in, you're in your darkest moment and um, professional resources are so valuable and so needed, but in those moments, you know, people don't often use them and they're really at their own, um, at the mercy of the tools that they have inside of themselves. And so, you know, that's really the core audience for the book is the people that struggle with suicidal ideation. And, you know, hopefully the best compliment I can get is, you know, your book made me think about this thing with my family or this thing, you know, you love baseball, but I love dance. And, um, you know, it's connecting with those things can really help us remember why we are alive and, and, and hopefully that helps us stay alive. Yeah, you make a good good point. Um, you know, I, I struggled with suicidal ideation frequently. Um, I had su- several suicide attempts, and and you know, it was my last one, which pretty much got me into a treatment center. And yes, mm-hmm. it's a struggle. It is a struggle every single day. But I'm learning the tools to try to help me and. and so I am I'm so grateful that you are able to put yourself out there in your own experiences. Um, and thank you for sharing yours. I'm glad you're doing better. And, and I think part of this is like, you know, there's, there's the professional resources, which are again, absolutely needed. And I share them on my website, suicidesurvivalstories.org. Um, you know, but we also have to build sort of a toolbox, you know, sort of a open source, toolbox for people who, you know, what are the tools that get you through? What are the tools that get me through? Because, you know, just because these, these couple of things that I'm saying right now, get me through right now, I mean, doesn't mean they will in a year, you know, and so the more that we talk, and the more that we're open, and the more that we share, you know, this, here's this tip that I, you know, have, or here's this trick that I learned. um, And we sort of crowdsource this bigger toolbox. you know, I think not only do we help each other, but we create connection. And, you know, with, with more connection, you know, hopefully there's less, less ideation. Mm -hmm. This book came out during the pandemic. Was this your plan? Um, Did you were you like, I need to get this book out now, because there are going to be a lot of people who are Uh going to be struggling with mental health and suicidal ideation, which, which has been in in a a huge issue, um, you know, during it will probably be, con- you know, post. Yeah, I know absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, I think in <laughs> wherever you live right now, it's sort of, do you believe we're still in the pandemic or not? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in Atlanta and, you know, things are a little looser um, and hopefully, you know, it stays that way and we don't have another, you know, bad variant or whatever. But 
Um, yeah, so there's a couple, there's there's actually three answers to that question. Um, okay. The, the first one is the 25th anniversary of my dad's suicide um, was February 24th, 2021, 2021. And so, mm. um, so I started thinking about this. I think sometime in spring of 2020 in like endless Zoom meetings that I was in, or all the different things, you know, Google chat, Teams, Zooms, it was like one thing after another. And somebody in one of those meetings said something like, if you're a writer and you didn't come out of this time with a book, what were you doing? Um, <laughs> and, but on Father's Day of 2021, which was my 25th fatherless Father's Day, um, I finished reading a book um, by Lane Moore called How to Be Alone. And her book really inspired me um, to sort of dig into this sort of seed of an idea that I had um, a few years before, but wasn't, I, I had more things to go through um, before I could tell my story. Um, but I, I really, she inspired me with, with her book. And so I started writing and then very quickly I was like, well, you know, I have extra time right now. Um, and the 25th anniversary is coming up in, in February. So my initial goal was like, can I write this and turn it around fast enough for it to be published around the anniversary? Um, which once I figured out what it would actually take, wasn't reasonable. Um, <sighs> but I, I did do crowdfunding to fund my project and I launched that crowdfunding in January of 2021 and ran it through February, you know, to observe his 25th anniversary. Um, and then the book ultimately came out last fall. Um, and so, so yes, it was, it was the anniversary. It was, you know, I knew that people w were struggling more and it would be a good, a good time. Um, and the third thing is like doing this project is what really kept me healthy and helped me get even healthier in the pandemic because, you know, I was able to not only go into these different places in my mind throughout time um, to tell those stories. Um, but I was also able to really focus on doing the work um, that I needed to do around my trauma, because I think for a long time, I mistakenly thought that my grief journey and my trauma journey were synonymous and the reality. And, and so I had gotten to a good place in my grief journey and therefore I assumed I had gotten to a good place in my trauma journey, uh, which was absolutely not the case. And so mm. it was really um, taking the time to do the dedicated work. Um, I mean, you know, when I started writing the book, I hadn't read his suicide letter in, you know, more than a decade. And, and so, you know, when I got to that part and you know, sort of had a suicide letter, on my end table, you know, reading it and quoting from it as I wrote for, you know, more than a week for that stretch around Thanksgiving in 2020. Um, you know, it just really gave me all kinds of new perspective because I think my, you know, one of the things I've learned, not just through this project, but earlier through sobriety, I got sober at the end of 2017, um, is that our trauma is is the constant and we are the variables. So this idea that we're supposed to get over our trauma is, you know, pretty unreasonable because the reality <laughs> is, is that when, as we grow, we re-experience our trauma through the lens of 
you know, the other things we've experienced in age and, and, and all of these different variables. So, um, you know, and the perfect example of this, you know, is my dad's suicide letter. Like literally I held this piece of paper in my hand when I was 18 years old, um, you know, hours after he, he had died. And I was holding the same piece of paper in my hand, you know, at that time in, in 2020 as a 42-year-old who was writing this book. And, I, you know, reading, reading the same words, the same piece of paper, but through a total, you know, totally different lenses and, and different lenses than, you know, the last time I read it, probably when I was around 30 or, or you know, when I read it in my early 20s in college or whatever. And so, um, you know, this project really helped me um, just face off against my trauma, um, you know, have conversations you know, with my therapist and with my AA sponsor and other people, you know, with some family um, that were long overdue um, and really have those conversations with myself and just face off against those fears. And, um, you know, even just the fear of, of engaging with my own mind. Um, but, you know, it, I had the time to do it. Uh, I'm a nonprofit fundraiser. And so I was doing a lot of work during the day, but, you know, nights and weekends, I had the time to, um, you know, to do, to do the work for the book, but to do the work for myself personally, which, um, you know, has been really great from a, from a personal standpoint, not just because mm -hmm. I have a book, you know, to share, but just from where I've, I've grown, um, yeah, as a person. How how has your and this is probably a very loaded question. How <laughs> how has your father's suicide affected you through the years? I mean, I think yeah, I mean there's there's kind of a macro answer and a micro answer. I think the macro answer is like I you know, this is you know, this is the path I've been on, right? Like mm -hmm. I can't Especially when I turned 18 three, three weeks before my dad died, um, I, you know, I can't think of my life as being on a different path. Like, every, you know, everything I've done as an adult um, has been through the lens of that trauma. And so, you know, it's really, there's no way to sort of separate it from the rest of my life, you know. Um, yeah. It just is so much of who I am because it happened at such a, you know, moment in my life, you know, where literally six months later, I went, I left home to go to college. And, um, and so pretty much everything as an adult that I've done has been informed, you know, through that trauma. Um, so that's the big picture. Um, but from, you know, from the small perspective, it ebbs and flows. I mean, it's, um, you know, and I think that's where, like, I did a lot of work about 10 years ago with, on the grief side with a nonprofit here in Atlanta called Kate's club that works with kids who've lost a parent or a sibling. And, you know, and I really, again, focused on the grief side of things, um, without really scratching the surface of the, of the trauma part. And so, um, I think there was a lot of unprocessed trauma that was under the surface that played out in my life in, you know, in other ways. And, um, you know, and I feel like in the past, you know, now almost coming up on two years since I started the book project, um, you know, I just am in a much better place with that. It doesn't mean it's, you know, it never, it never goes away, but, 
Um, I've learned so much more about myself and, um, you know, now I'm dealing with processed emotions around trauma rather than unprocessed. And um, the difference between those two concepts is, and how they affect my day-to-day life is pretty massive, you know? Yeah. Did the suicide note give you more closure or did it give you, give you, I guess, did it cause more questions to bubble up? No, I, the biggest thing that surprised me about reading the letter this time is I was really overwhelmed with gratitude and gratitude is a process as a, you know, is a concept that I've sort of, um, and a practice I've developed, you know, since I got sober. Um, and, and I, you know, I was kind of blindsided by this, this feeling of gratitude because, you know, like somewhere, and this is, you know, I'm not sure what the actual number is, but, you know, more than 50% of people who lose someone to suicide, that person doesn't leave any sort of a note or answers or letter or anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think the first thing, you know, having introduced gratitude into my life in a much different way um, through AA, um, I was just able to see, like, I might not like these answers. And some of them, um, you know, I think some of the things he, he said to me, he was right, and some of them he wasn't right. Um, and I might not like some of his thoughts or where his his mind was. I mean, he obviously struggled with the same things that I do, even though he was not diagnosed. And you know, men of he was forty seven in nineteen ninety six, and you know, men of that generation didn't you know go to therapy or take meds or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so you know, he was definitely struggling, and and I could tell that. But again. I had answers, right? I may not have liked them. Um, And my perspective on those, on on what he wrote, obviously has shifted, right? Like I can look back at some of the things that he was saying to me as an 18 year old um, and be like, yeah, that, you know, he had some good points. I should, I should have listened um, to some of those things about like being more disciplined about my schoolwork and things like that in college. Um, And then other things that he said, um, like, he was very cynical about the media, the press, and I went to, I got a journalism degree and was a newspaper reporter for the first eight years of my career. And, um, you know, he didn't really support me fully in that. And, you know, and that still bugs me. Right. And, but, mm-hmm. but again, like I have this letter that I can go back to. And it's also, it was also very different at that, at that time as, as a 42 year old, I'm 44 now. Um, and he was 47 to just understand that like, he was just a guy, like he wasn't a superhero, you know, like, mm-hmm. I think, especially when we're little kids, you know, we think of our parents as like, uh, you know, these superheroes who have no flaws and can take care of everything. And the reality is, is like, they're just humans, you know, yeah. and they're flawed and they're trying. And, you know, especially when they're navigating their own mental health issues and things like that, like, you know, I think I, I was just able to see him through this process, um, you know, as a, as a guy in his 40s who was struggling and wanted the best for his family, but through the lens of mental health, of his mental health struggles, he was upside down in his thinking. And his logic told him that 
the only way he could take care of his family is if he died and they got insurance money. And, you know, that logic was very, was very upside down. Um, but it was, but he thought he was doing the right thing. So I don't agree with that, but I have to, I have to, in some, in some weird way, I have to respect that that was where he was. And as just a human that didn't have any resources um, to think differently. And, and that, and that all goes back to why we need to talk because the more mm -hmm. that ideas like that stay in our head and don't leave our mouths, whether it's to friends or to a therapist or on social media or, or a combination of all those things, they just turn into poison. And, you know, the suicidal ideation just becomes poison. And that's what I believe happened to him is that, I mean, I, I have, I got my diagnosis of clinical depression and generalized anxiety, which obviously millions of other people have. I'm not, I'm not special. Um, but I got that diagnosis back in 2002. I mean, it was six years between the time he died and the time I was diagnosed. Um, even though I struggled with all those same things in that time and even before he died. Um, now I can see that. Um, but, you know, it's been 20 years of my diagnosis. I've been with my same therapist for 15 years, like same meds for a long time, relatively stable. And depression kicks my ass all the time. Like it's, you mm -hmm. know, and suicidal ideation and anxiety. Like these things are things that I struggle with every single day, like so many people. But to think about him as a 47-year-old who had probably struggled with the same things for just as long, but had no treatment and no outlet and only what was in his head. Um, like it sounds totally unbearable. Right. So like, I have to be able to find that empathy for him as a human, you know, I think for so long, I just saw myself as a victim of his decision mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I think I've, because of the tools of sobriety, especially, um, you know, I, and through the, through the project and the personal work that I did um, around the book, you know, I've just able, I've been able to find just so much more compassion for him, you know, and it's one of those, you know, like, I've never really liked this, the, the concept of like, I can forgive you, but I'll never forget kind of thing. It's like, to me, those seem pretty intertwined. Um, and if you're remembering it, are you really forgiving? But I think with this, like, I think I have, like, obviously I'll never forget my dad himself or that last decision he made, but I have forgiven him. And I understand as, you know, as a guy in his mid forties who struggles with, you know, these mental health challenges like i understand how hard it must have been and, and even i also can't understand how hard it was in that time in the world um with no with no tools you know yeah. and so um so that's kind of where i've where i've come mm. You you also talk in your book and you also contributed to Authentic Insider, which I'm I'm so grateful for. Um yeah, you thank talk about Absolutely. Um you talk about your curiosities of what was he thinking in those mm -hmm. final moments. 
And and that kind of, that kind of consumed you to the point, you know, what was he thinking? How 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 did that consume you? And and what have you learned from from just that? Yeah, idea? I'm gonna change a word. I, I, it, yes, it please. Haunted. It, yeah, it haunted me. I, I think that's the better word because yeah. um, it wasn't something that was constant. Um, but it, but it was something that I came back to, you know. So it was definitely something that kind of haunted me over time. Um, but. And that was the seed of the idea of the of the book, right? Um, in those minutes between when he closed the door to the car and started it, um, he did the carbon monoxide in the car thing, um, you know, before he lost consciousness, like what was he thinking and why wasn't it enough to stop? You know, I think that was my thought. Um, and And you combine that with the you know the concept we've all heard forever that your life flashes before your eyes you know when you die or when you're about to die you know life death or near death experience kind of kind of lore mm-hmm. um and so that's and so the seed idea for the book was not only what was he thinking about but what would i see from my life if my life flashed before my eyes and so that was sort of the um you know the the concept of the of the book of you know it's every chapter is a date is based around a date and it's told in a non-linear fashion because obviously um our lives wouldn't pass before us chronologically i don't believe <laughs> um and so you know so it's definitely a book that plays with time um and you know it jumps around but uh, you know i think we did a good job of of organizing it in a way that it's not disorienting um but also you know you jump from 2004 to 1999 to 2015 you know um but that's how our memories work right that's how our memories think about time like they're you know in the same way that in our dreams like things aren't linear and so our our minds play with time, and so that's where um, I wanted to organize the book that way, you know, sort of based on that original what was he thinking um, at the time kind of thing. Because I think that also in the way that our minds play with time, you know, our social, our, you know, suicidal ideation minds want to rob us of the positive memories right so Mm -hmm. we have to be way more intentional um about how we remember things and i think that's where you know this book about about my life is really about time and how we experience time and how we experience memory and how we tap into those memories again in order in our darkest moments to connect with the perspective we need to remember um what you know what's truly possible and again like this concept and this tool that i'm putting out there is not a silver bullet like it may not help everybody um but i hope it helps some people you know and it definitely has helped me i mean i on november 29th 2017 on the closest I've been to suicide, it was 
it, it was exactly that, thinking about my family and thinking about, you know, some happier memories that helped me get over that hump and get me to the next morning where I was able to reach out to my college roommate and say, you know, I need help. I feel like I'm suicidal, but more than anything, I feel like I have a problem with alcohol and he'd been sober since 2001 and, you know, I wanted to talk to him and, you know, that bridge was enough to get me talking and then to the resources I need um, to get sober, which brought me a whole new set of tools that has helped me, um, you know, survive, survive. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and and I've gotten, I think I've gotten good at surviving, but I'm, you know, I'm working on how do I get from surviving to thriving, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's nonlinear, right? We have our, we have those days and, you know, you made a great point by saying, you know, when we are in the suicidal idea, this idea where we are, we want to kill ourselves or we want to attempt suicide, everything's negative. It's so hard to fish for the positive and be, and be grateful. But the thing is, you made a good point. If you are able to pull out what you're grateful for every single day, it'll come easier when those moments arrive when you're like, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, so and I, I do want to make a distinction great. for for the audience that being suicidal and having suicidal ideation are not synonyms. Mm-hmm. It's a spectrum. And, you know, I thought for a long time that if I was thinking about suicide, then I was suicidal and therefore I'm crazy. And therefore, and that can get you on this, sort of spinning that only exacerbates this, the problem, right? But to me, suicidal ideation is one end of the spectrum. And when when it starts to spin out of control is when you get to being suicidal. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to think about suicide in lots of different ways, right? My dad died by suicide. Like, it's not unhealthy to think about suicide. When there's danger and you're making a plan and someone is actively suicidal, um, you know, that's, that's the place that, um, you know, someone needs help at that moment. And the biggest reason that I'm saying this is that a lot of people don't share about suicidal ideation because they are worried that the person they're sharing to is going to overreact. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you, and therefore they don't share and therefore it becomes poison. So if you have, if you're in a position where you can support a friend, you know, you have to look at what's happening and know that first off it's not about you so if your friend is talking calmly and explaining things to you and you know and there's not danger don't create danger right but Mm -hmm. if 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 your friend is like spinning and saying i'm planning to do this um and there is like clear and present danger that that is genuine and not about you being scared, um, then obviously like help them in whatever way they need to be helped. But, um, you know, I think if we want to lower the stigma around talking about suicidal ideation, we have to make sure that when we're being supportive as friends, that we're not projecting onto people danger that 
might not be there yet because there is a spectrum. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Those, those are a couple of things that I've tried to, you know, be intentional about sharing, um, you know, which, which are things in my, those things aren't in my book. Um, but just as I'm talking and sort of trying to advocate a little more for people to talk more about suicidal ideation, um, you know, I, I, you have to think about the reasons why people don't, you know, and I think one of those is like, well, if I tell someone that I'm thinking about suicide, they're going to like put me in a car and take me to a mental institution, right? And who wants that? And, you know, that doesn't mean that some people, when they get to the point of being suicidal, that that's what they need, right? But but the fear of that keeps people silent and and therefore can create more poison, which creates more suicides. Yeah. You know, I... I feel like for me, you know, as a child, I was suicidal at a very early age. Um, I had suicidal ideation, but like you said, I didn't want to talk about it. It was it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. I went from there to for to my first attempt, um, and 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 I don't think it was that I wanted to die. I think I mm-hmm. wanted help. I just didn't yeah. know how to ask for it. Totally. Um, but but I think another the, the another problem was you know. People are like, oh, well, they just want attention. Honestly, yes, maybe they do. I think they need someone to attend to what is happening, um, you know, in their lives. For me, mm-hmm. after, I, th- I think I was crying out for help. Um, and I thought maybe, I, maybe I'd be taken to a hospital. Maybe something would, I, I actually wanted to be taken to a hospital. That's, yeah. how, that's how serious it was. But my parents... They just they just hoped for the best, and they didn't take me anywhere. They didn't want to take me to see a therapist, mm-hmm. um, and and that that was just that was traumatic in and of itself. But I think there, you know, when someone is coming to you and saying, "I don't want to live anymore," we need to we really need to listen, and yeah. and I want to. How do we talk to especially children nowadays? You know, they're just in, you know, in my daughter's school, there was a 13 year old who, who committed suicide. It was, it was terrible. It was awful. Um, And, you know, how, how do, should we be bringing this up? Should we be talking about it in schools? What are your thoughts about that? If we, if, as someone who is an advocate for having these difficult discussions, how do we start those discussions when maybe somebody's not even feeling suicidal or maybe there is somebody we just don't know? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think the fear of talking about it on kind of the adult side, when we're talking about teenagers and I used to run a nonprofit um for teenagers so i had a little experience there um we're worried that if we talk about it then we're giving them ideas right but Mm -hmm. i think the reality is is that if you create a space of open dialogue you're more likely to lead to healthy outcomes than you are to lead to unhealthy outcomes that doesn't mean that there won't be unhealthy outcomes right like it's Mm -hmm. not a it's not a zero-sum game um and i mean that's why it's you know i've never heard anyone say the phrase suicide eradication right like in suicide prevention Mm -hmm. you know we're trying to prevent suicide 
but the reality is is that if we go about it as if we're trying to you know eliminate all suicide which isn't reasonable right like there are things that are going to happen um and you you just that's just probability right i mean mm-hmm. um and we have to face the reality of, of of the situation is is that like we're um you know more kids will be and more people in general will be in more danger without dialogue and engagement um than than they would be if we engage right because mm-hmm. For for a lot of people that experience suicidal ideation, it is that lack of connection. It is that lack of engagement um, that is is part of it, right? Because like like you said, a lot of folks don't want to die. They just don't want to live the way they're living, and they mm-hmm. want help and they want support, you know. And so it's like. Um, you know, and it's different, it's nuanced and it's different for every, for every person. And it's just one of those things that we can't, um, you know, again, there aren't silver bullets. There's not a panacea. We can't just do one thing and say, here are these five tools that are going to work until the end of time. Like it's an evolving, it's an evolving thing, you know, how it is to be a teenager now with social media and everything that they I mean, it's nonstop, you know, we're at least like, I mean, I was a teenager in the nineties and it was like, at least we got to turn off high school when we went home, you know, mm-hmm. um, whereas like it's all consuming for them and, and therefore there has to have to be different tools. And in 10 years, there will have to have another set of new tools. Right. And so, um, <laughs> it can't be something that we can just set up and not engage with it. There has to be intentionality. There has to be conversation. Um, and to focus on, you know, well, this, we did all this and this still happened. So we shouldn't talk about it anymore. Right. Um, it's like, it's just not, it's not reasonable from a probability standpoint, from a logic standpoint. And so if the thing that leads to healthier outcomes is more dialogue, then we should engage in more dialogue. That's, you know, that's my take. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that if someone comes to you saying that they, they don't want to live, they don't like their life, that Mm -hmm. we should should absolutely engage with compassion and empathy um, a hundred percent. So. Yeah. um, and look, I like over 20 years since I got first diagnosed in 2002, like the stigma around talking about mental health has shifted massively in 20 mm-hmm. years. But even still, until I was a couple months into writing the book, as much as I had shared on social media and stuff about mental health and, um, you know, had these open conversations about anxiety and depression. I had never said suicidal ideation out loud on social media until I was already writing the book. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to be an advocate for this, like I have to start sharing too. Um, And so, you know, I make sure not to just, just say anxiety and depression, but, but say suicidal ideation and, and make sure that, um, you know, that's part of the conversation too. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I think, I mean, like I said, I think the three things, you know, that are sort of the, the takeaways from the book. I mean, I hope I wrote a book that's a good memoir that people, um, you know, can enjoy, or if, if they don't struggle with suicidal ideation, I hope it can give them insights on their loved ones that do. And then mm-hmm. of course, for the core audience, I hope, I hope that it, um, you know, gives them um, some tools and, and helps them feel like they're not alone. Um, but yeah, the main thing is just back to those three things, share and share often, you know, be intentional about connecting with, with the people, passions and experiences of your life that bring you joy through your memories. Um, and then, you know, don't fucking kill yourself. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And if you are in crisis, I want to mention this again, you can call the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jeff, he is the author of Don't Fucking Kill Yourself. For more on Jeff, you can go ahead and click on that uh, fortune cookie. Um you can also visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, T is T, podcast.com. He has contributed to February's issue of Authentic Insider, which you can find at my website. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Next week, we are taking a break. But when we come back the following week, that would be Thursday, April 21st, we go live with energy healer and mindset coach Amanda Monier. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside Chat. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.